0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University.
1: Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome you to this podcast and urge you to go to our website at www.yaleruddcenter.org. Uh, to view our other podcasts which are excellent and also a series of resources that we have available at the Rudd Center including a free email newsletter and a variety of uh, informational resources on issues regarding food and food policy. My guest today is uh, Mark Gold, a physician who's on the faculty at the University of Florida and a distinguished expert on the topic of addiction. Uh, Mark did his undergraduate work at Washington University in St. Louis he then did his medical training at the University of Florida, then came to Yale where he did his psychiatric residency, and has been at the University of Florida for a number of years on the faculty. Um, there he is a distinguished professor. He's the Donald Disney Eminent Scholar, a state distinction in Florida. Uh, he's the director of the McKnight Brain Institute at the University of Florida. And then on top of all that, He's the chair of the Department of Psychiatry. So a wonderful scholar and a remarkably accomplished individual. Mark, thanks for coming with us Thank today. Thank you. Great to be here. Glad to have you here. So. You and I first connected with one another because of uh, our building interest in the topic of food and addiction. And when we scouted around the landscape for the people who had done work on this, you were one of the first out of the gate and one of the ones who had done the most work. And you and your colleagues in Florida have contributed a lot of the important work. What got you interested in this topic in the first place? Because you've been working, I know, over your career with other substances of abuse.
0: Well, my, you know, my career in addiction, um... Spans most drugs of abuse. So uh, I was interested in tobacco, alcohol, opiates, cocaine, and um, It didn't take long to realize that if you were lucky enough to help someone Stop using a drug that they were dependent upon Whether it be tobacco or alcohol or cocaine If they stopped for a week, a month, a year, something dramatic changed with their appetite. They Uh, almost always reported that they had an increase in their appetite and almost always reported that they had tremendous weight gain. And they describe almost a loss of control over food. Mm. So it was as if they took one pathological attachment to drugs and transferred it to food. And so we, we looked at that with cigarette smoking, and so did a number of other groups. And almost everyone has shown that if you successfully stop smoking cigarettes, you gain weight. Interestingly enough, most experts forget that you gain weight for years, at least a year. And none of the nicotine replacements actually prevent that weight gain. So it's independent of nicotine, but it's related to the drug. For alcohol, I collaborated with experts at the Betty Ford Center, and we looked at people who successfully stopped drinking. Lo and behold, what do you find is overeating, and uh, obesity, and for cocaine, overeating, and obesity. So if it were just one thing, like say exactly.
1: tobacco, you could blame it on that particular substance. But the fact that you're finding it across substances is very interesting.
0: Right. So that kind of gave us the idea that they're related. And I, I proposed at a American Society of Addiction Medicine uh, world, co- you know, kind of a big conference, national conference, that we should consider the possibility that food and drugs compete in the brain for the same reinforcement sites. And if drugs are on, food's less compelling. And if food's on, drugs are less compelling. Well, this was probably 15 or so years ago. And it was not very well received. It was kind of like we're going to trivialize drug abuse. And we're going to provide excuses for people to eat. And it it was um, a food fight. So... so, um, I just continued looking at that, and so we then moved on and said, well, what other way could we approach this that might convince people in the drug abuse field? Well, you could do basic science, and we've done that. You could do functional imaging, we've done that, and you could also do some descriptive work with their own patients. So I I said, let's look at their own patients. We said, well, what happens if you're morbidly obese? So we looked at patients before they were um, to get bariatric surgery. So they had BMIs over 40. And we said, well, here we are. Let's look at these people and, and find out why is it that bariatric surgeons don't have to ask for an addiction medicine consult before bariatric surgery? They don't. Why don't they have to ask people in my group to evaluate their patients? They don't. They might evaluate them for body dysmorphic. They might evaluate them for major depression but never for substance abuse. And that's because there's virtually no substance abuse among people with high body mass index. And it's almost inversely related. So we looked at alcohol. The heavier you are, the less you drink. We look at tobacco. The heavier you are, the less you smoke, and other drugs. So every time we looked at that, now that was interesting mm-hmm. to people in, in drug abuse, because almost all of them said, you know, that's funny. When we see someone coming into the, to treatment for drug abuse, they're thin. Or they're certainly not to the point that we would need special chairs or special beds. We never even considered that. So um, I remember taking Nora Volkoff around the Brain Institute, at the University of Florida, before she was the NIDA director and before. The director
1: of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, Yeah, a very well-known figure in the field.
0: Yeah, and before she was uh, left Brookhaven, which is a, the principal site for most of the PET imaging Positron Emission Mm Tomography Studies in the United States with Jean Jack Wang. And she was saying that she was looking to build a special table and special pet device that could handle uh, morbidly obese people. Our group had had done functional imaging um, with uh, people who had uh, morbid obesity, and we found something pretty interesting, and that was the heavier you are, the longer it took for food signals to reach the hypothalamus. And that kind of gave me a second thought, which was, well, people gain weight and gain weight and gain weight. They don't seem to be able to lose weight. And why is that? And so I, I never blame the patient and typically blame bad learning and the brain. So if you look at it from the brain's point of view, you'd say, well, what is it about the brain that conspires to keep weight on? So you could have an, environment, an evolutionary argument. OK, it, it's, it's positive to have extra body mass in the event of a major famine. You could say the brain learns that eating is pleasureful and then reorganizes itself to reinforce that, and I think that's been shown nicely. And then lastly, you could say the brain somehow doesn't even get a food signal, and eating becomes almost automatic. And that, that kind of is, is uh, the work that our group has looked at that says basically it takes about 20 minutes if you're obese for food signals to reach your brain. Just imagine... What does that mean if you're eating fast food? You drive in, place your order, get the fast food, leave the restaurant, and you can come back two or three times for two or three complete meals before you get the first signal. So, um, yeah, it's been a very important area for us. It's similar to the work that we've done with cocaine when, at a time when cocaine was considered not addicting, and it's similar to the work that we've done with tobacco when there was a debate, it's hard to believe, there was actually a debate whether it was a choice, whether you were addicted, and, wh- and how, um, how we might understand that kind of addiction.
1: So that your, your history of your own interest in this is very interesting. and tells us a lot about how the field, or the interest in the topic of food and addiction has taken place over the years. Um, Our interest in this really began uh, many years ago, but we haven't done anything about it until recently. Based on clinical observations, many of our patients who were coming in for help with their weight were using the language of addiction to describe their experience. They would talk about heavy-duty cravings for foods that they simply couldn't resist. um, Something that sounded like withdrawal when they went on a diet and stopped eating the foods they were eating. Uh, Some people were reporting uh, what could be perceived of as tolerance, eating more and more of these high-fat, high-sugar foods over time and things. And what was amazing to me when we started looking into this about how our field, that is in the nutrition and obesity field, has been very contrary to even the possibility that food might be addictive. I'm not quite sure exactly why, but the fact is that that's been the case. And it really took work from people like you in the addictions field to stimulate interest in this. And that's what pre- precipitated us inviting you to Yale for the first time, and then for you and I to co-chair a conference at Yale that happened the summer before this last one. Can you uh, get, describe the conference a little bit and what sure. you think that accomplished there?
0: Um, well, it's nice to be in any conference that after it's finished, um, experts describe as historic. So I think that bringing together the experts from Uh, really around the United States from many different fields um, who had done original work in this area was very unique. uh, we We don't have a national meeting, so there's no way for experts to talk to each other. So the first thing I remember is just how many people I wanted to talk to and ask questions to and how many people wanted to talk to me. So I felt that the meeting was a a great success because we don't have a journal. We have no way of communicating. And it is a cryptic form of communication for us to submit a paper, wait for it to be published, and then people who are interested in our work read it if they're lucky enough to follow the literature with the right keywords.
1: You know, it was inter- my own experience was very much the same as yours that we we intentionally brought together leading experts in the obesity and nutrition field with ex- experts from the addiction field, uh, and as far as I know, it was the first time that people really come together yeah. around this topic of food and addiction. And I felt the same way you did. I just wanted to ask a million questions of all the people there, and I remember one in particular where I was curious about this this issue of tolerance and, mm-hmm. and whether people need more of whatever food it is over time. And so I was asking the um, the researchers there, especially the people that had done animal studies, whether the studies on food ingestion in animals, especially on high sugar diets, and you can create a nice curve of how much the animals consume when they're given free access to a high sugar diet, and asked people whether those resembled tolerance curves that you get in animals exposed to drugs. And people said they hadn't thought about it, but they thought that it really the the two did resemble one another. And that, you know, cemented in my mind among the other things that happened at the meeting, the importance of that topic.
0: I mean, I'd agree. If you said, well, drugs of abuse are defined by self-administration. They're not, so um, there is self-administration. Animals will self-administer sugar solutions and binge on them. So there's loss of control, self-administration. There's changes in the brain. When we look at an addiction, we say there's changes in the dopamine receptor sensitivities, key areas in the brain responsible for pleasure, change. If... If uh, you take a neuroradiologist that's gifted in reading these PET images and show them a PET image of an alcoholic and a PET image of somebody who's morbidly obese, they can't tell the difference. And I also think that just the kind of uh, treatment that we have, think about the treatment for addiction. You know, it's a residential treatment for 28 days, lifelong chronic relapsing illness that you prevent by going to meetings almost every day. This is herculean. It's a huge investment of time and energy on the person. So the addiction, the pathological attachment, is tremendously strong for drugs. And for food, we have the principal treatment right now being bariatric surgery. For people that are very overweight. Yeah. I mean, the treatments short of that seem to be pretty weak. uh, and uh, a work in progress. But I, I do think that the insights that are coming from addiction will help us develop uh, more effective treatments early on. But in the, in the absence of, of uh, a vaccine, a successful treatment all the time, we're, we focus on prevention. So for drugs of abuse, we say, don't smoke. We say, don't drink until you're adult if you're going to drink at all and those lower the chances that a person smokes or drinks or has um, tobacco related death or injury related to to alcohol. The prevention for overeating is um, in its earliest phases. Um, I remember getting the vending machines. you and I were chatting about this out of of diners, you know, being an older person, we, had, you know, so you, you weren't allowed to smoke as a kid, but you could go to a diner and they'd have a machine out there and for a quarter you'd get a pack of cigarettes. Um, so the price is startling. The access is startling. The price of food that's highly reinforcing, much more likely to be addicting, much more likely to cause loss of control is peculiarly cheap. And access is equally peculiar it's all over the place so it reminds me a lot of where we are in food and food policy reminds me of tobacco in the day when i can remember giving medical grand rounds at major academic medical centers on tobacco five people would show up you'd never have a sponsor and there'd be doctors smoking Hmm.
1: what a change (laughs) what a change um, let's talk about the criteria for substance dependence now. Because um, there are well-known psychiatric criteria that get used to, to determine or classify whether people are dependent on a substance or not. It'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on what a few of those are and whether you think they map onto the, what people experience with food.
0: Sure. the um, the You have both the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manuals, Approach to Diagnosis, where the core of addiction would be continued compulsive use in the face of numerous multi-system adverse consequences. And the recognition that those consequences are related to the drug, or in this case, food, in no way helps you. I mean, So you you have this great insight, gee, if I'm going to continue to overeat like this, I'm going to get diabetes. Um, But that doesn't help you. There's a lot of denial. Um Denial meaning that you somehow convince yourself that you're really not bad or you're good compared to somebody else or you really haven't lost control. and there's escalation of use. there's problems in your mind where you're always like thinking about access. Like will I do I keep a pill in the glove compartment or have access to food is, is not as as dramatic. The, the losses of medical function, social function, occupational function, health, all come about as a consequence of this pathological attachment. In, in a quick way, in medical textbooks, if you were to go to like UpToDate or any of the prominent medical textbooks, uh, my ch- um, chapter, we'd say, if you're going to interview somebody in a medical clinic and you want to know if they have uh, an alcohol problem, ask them the C- and the A in the cage. So the C would be, have you ever felt the need to cut down on your alcohol intake? And the A would be, have you ever been angered when someone talked to you about alcohol? Now, that is pretty easy to pass that for obesity. You mean, because almost everyone's been on a diet, and almost everyone is trying to ration themselves and cut down. That's almost continuous daily struggle. Like a cocaine addict who wakes up in the morning and says, I'm never going to use cocaine today, only to find out that they didn't make it to noon. And then angered, yes, it it angers you because the drug, your relationship, that's kind of why I, I was using these pathological attachments. Your relationship to the drug is odd and pathological. So that some cannabis addicts love their plants, more than you might love a child, a significant other. And I've seen cannabis, some cannabis addicts that groomed their plants better than they groomed themselves. Um, So they have this kind of uh, uh, pathological attachment, And the, the same applies to food. For someone who loves food and eating and cooking, cooking for somebody else is a great pleasure smelling the food, seeing the food, great pleasure. Who's watching the Food Channel anyway? And so all of these things, I think, are part of the reason that we have to think that these are not anything more than some part of the spectrum where we have illicit drugs, we have the earliest so-called process addictions, which would be gambling, which right now is not a big in dispute, Sex, uh, sexual compulsivity, which is not in as much of a dispute in our field as an addiction as it was just a few years ago, and food. So in the spectrum of, you know, from cocaine and heroin to uh, fast food and sugar, I think that there's a pretty good argument that the process addictions hijack the same brain systems that drugs of abuse hijack, and are part of the same spectrum of diseases. The word hijack is a very powerful
1: word in this context, isn't it? Because it really uh, implies that the, what's going on in the brain overwhelms personal control, uh, personal decision making, discipline, restraint, all those sort of things. And I know that people in the drug abuse field feel that the word hijack is perfectly appropriate and not too strong a word for many of the drugs abuse. Do you think that the research on food is strong enough yet to attach that word?
0: Probably not, and, but it, it is, again, the research would support the idea that the same brain systems that are almost paralyzed by drugs of abuse, where there is a question of free will, that the same brain systems and the changes in the same direction are occurring for food. There may be that uh, cocaine um, has an effect that's so powerful that we can't compare it to anything, but we can still compare um, an atomic bomb um, to a submachine gun. hmm you know, let's we
1: can loop back then to this idea of access. If you think about the, the, the brain being controlled by these substances, now some of the substances you talk about, cocaine, heroin, are not easy for the normal mm-hmm. person to get. They're right. illegal, you take a lot of risk in getting them, they cost a lot of money. And food, as you said before, is so different from that where it's incredibly cheap. Americans pay less of their per capita income to feed themselves than people anywhere else in the world. The accessibility is absolutely amazing. Vending machines everywhere, fast food restaurants, selling the stuff in schools—you know, it's just it's it's ubiquitous. Um, you got a real problem controlling it then, if people have some sort of an addictive process going on.
0: Definitely, because you you have the interaction of access and then environmental triggered cues. So, in the old days, to bring up cigarettes again, you would then might have a cue which might be. Seeing someone light up a cigarette, and you would then look for your cigarettes, or if you didn't have them, go get them, um, or there may there may be something where you walk through an area and smell tobacco smoke. So again, you would have a drug cue, and all you need is access, and you can then use that drug. You, so you're correct. It's it's not that easy to do for all the drugs of abuse, but for food. A cue might be a television commercial. It might be a paired association of a logo. It means, so you have it in your mind, this logo, this character, with that craving. It. it might be a sight, seeing someone eat, or a smell. All of those things you would expect to drive craving and the and drive the person toward that
1: food. So some reaction in the brain takes yeah. over, triggered by this cue that makes it hard for people to resist. You know, when you were talking about the smell of cigarette smoke, I was reminded that there are grocery stores now, that most of the big grocery stores have a bakery and they sell baked goods, but as I understand, a lot of them aren't actually baking the goods on site, but they come pre-made, frozen, and they warm them up, essentially. But they know that that smell brings people to the bakery, and so they have a machine that puts out bakery smell into the supermarket, even when the bakery itself isn't generating it. Right. And that's the kind of thing that you'd expect to trigger these kind of reactions. Maybe not an addiction, but a you know craving for those kind of foods. It,
0: there, there are um, cravings that would occur in some periodicity. Like if you're really hungry, you have cravings. But clearly, most Americans are not starving. Um, yeah. It is very, very interesting and important area. It's understudied. I kind of remember that one of the theme park companies um, blows in a a popcorn aroma to stimulate Coca-Cola sales. So these might even be paired, um, smell, food. You know, why is it that every time you go to a movie theater, you want popcorn? I mean, I, I don't want popcorn any other time. It's not, What is it about a movie theater and popcorn? You go, you have to have it. Yeah. Right. So it's not that you couldn't resist, but it's probably that you don't see any reason to. You have access to it. And in a cost-benefit analysis, which is where the CBT, the cognitive behavior folks live, you would say, well, what's the cost of me eating this today? And... Really, you gain weight very slowly, and you get used to it. You're very, um, society helps you out. Um, As you gain weight, they just change your pants size, but you stay the same size. It's remarkable. You gain weight, and, you know, you're still the same size because the the industry helps you. They don't want to insult you, so they change the dress size or pants pant size. Call it, like, now we have Dockers or, you know, whatever.
1: So let me ask this following question. The the issue of, like, craving for popcorn mm -hmm. when you go to the theater is an example, but not one where, you know, it's going to affect the public health a lot. But mm-hmm. let's talk about an area where it does affect the public health, and that's children. Mm-hmm. If you think about what children are exposed to these days, relentless marketing, accessibility, all those sort of things, low cost of food that we talked about before, what do you think the that means in terms of addiction and creating uh, a child whose brain is being you know, if if taken over might be too strong mm-hmm. a word, but certainly affected by these foods. What do you think all that means?
0: You know, I mean, I, it, it's clear that we don't know as much as we should know about uh, neurobehavior development. So there's an interaction between food and brain that we don't understand. So like food preference, when you travel in... Asia. I just got back from Asia. You you say to yourself, why do people like that? How do they? so? The, there's something about learning in developing food preference, food tasting, that is brain based, if you ask me, and that involves early childhood experience and so forth. Um, that's poorly studied. It would need to be longitudinal in a study, but it is clear that. That what you do when your brain's fully formed has a much different trajectory of effect than what happens when you're young. so are there if, are
1: there things we can learn from uh, developmental work with other substances that right. might be important lessons to think of here, like early exposure to drugs in right. the brain of developing children? Um, exposure to drugs and sensitivity to those drugs later in life and things like that?
0: That's that's a great question. If you took tobacco, you'd say, if you smoked cigarettes as a teenager, you'll smoke cigarettes forever without a really powerful intervention. And um, there's even some studies that would say that if you started smoking after 30, you only smoked a couple of cigarettes a day. You hardly could develop a full pack-a-day habit because your brain is formed and you just can't feel the same as a person who develops a cigarette smoking addiction in their teens. Um, Secondhand smoke. The number one uh, predictor of cigarette smoking is to have a mother or father who smokes. So in utero exposure makes it more likely that you smoke. And then secondhand smoke. So again, early experience, actual exposure, Makes it much more likely that you have a problem with that substance, and that the problem is chronic and lifelong. So, the, and for alcohol, it binge drinking as a as a an adolescent is a very very ominous predictor for alcohol. The reason for the drinking ages are based on that, and also driving safety. So, um, the literature is very clear that. The brain is not fully gyrified, is not fully developed for females until 21, for males probably much later, but still um, drug effects um, change the brain acutely and then change the brain in a way that make drug liking and craving much more uh, uh, chronic and relapsing. And, And experts have said that Maybe the brain gets confused and thinks that the drug or the substance is part of puberty, is part of development, and should always be there. But we don't know. But it's a critical area. And some some people who've talked about food in this context have said, well, maybe we have it all wrong. Instead of parents giving ice cream to children, they should give them, you know, like uh, these like... Zero calorie. I mean, just there should be abstinence and uh, a- attention to to energy and metabolism, and not attention to the most palatable, the most erotic, the most exotic um, food types, because that exposure might make craving and wanting of those food types um, more of a problem, lifelong problem just like for substance abuse. But that's not known. But still, I would say it's logical.
1: What do you think the next generation of research should be to really move us ahead on this topic of food and addiction?
0: Well, I mean, this is a hard question. I'll give you a couple of things we're looking at. We're looking at sugar binging and the effects that that has on genes and gene expression. So that will be a direct question do uh, uh, animals that learn how to binge on sugar, do their brains change like the brains of animals that binge on drugs of abuse in that when the sugar has gone and when the drugs of abuse gone, the brain has changed and it doesn't change back that fast?
1: So the idea then would be that these animals are permanently altered. In a way that would affect not only them, but they would pass along different things to their offspring.
0: No, I'm not sure about the offspring, not but I am sure that the the genes that they have would act in a way to make their own life uh, and the relationship that they have to sugar or drugs much more different. It wouldn't be that we would we we would change them in a way that would alter uh, future generations. Now, we would alter future generations, probably through the parents um, through intrauterine exposure and early postnatal exposure and exposure as a child. Um, well, if this is true, you could see how
1: you'd get a problem like obesity becoming worse with generations because the, the behavior of eating could affect the individual. That would affect their offsprings in utero environment. Then, then their risk for being overweight or having eating problems goes up. And then over over generations, this could really multiply.
0: Yeah, it's, been, it's actually been a thought that I've had. And um, we just, it's hard to study. And it's very hard to study in humans. We're doing this project with Bart Hubble. And I think our own genetic and proteomic uh, research that we've done for years in drugs of abuse, applying that to his sugar binge model, I think, will be very helpful.
1: That sounds like the
0: very interesting
1: work. You know, I'd like to come back at the end and ask you about the implications of all this. But before I do that, um, you and I have become interested in uh, and are collaborating on a paper on caffeine and the role that may be playing in driving food intake. What are some of your thoughts on that?
0: Well, you know, um, you, you helped me get into this uh, caffeine thinking. My, my, um, I started by saying, well, gee, on campus, we have a lot of drinks that are originating on campus that are really mixtures of caffeine and alcohol. And it's not unlike what we saw in the early days of cocaine, where cocaine and alcohol were used together, and there were a lot of tragic consequences because you could drink more and appear awake only to have the cocaine wear off and you pass out. So we've seen caffeine uh, appear on the national list of reasons to go to an emergency room, so-called dawnless. That's unheard of. I think it's 12 or 13 in the United States. It's reasons, drug reasons to go to emergency room. That's pretty, pretty odd. Um, so I, I was interested in it from that point of view, and you've helped me understand that um, caffeine, of course, when added to something that might be neutral, would get properties that would allow it to be self-administered. Our group had had a a couple of funny experiments. As you know, we looked at caffeine in beverages, in sports drinks, in decaffeinated coffee. And we were pretty much, I think, the first to show that in uh, specialty house brewed um, decaffeinated coffee, you could find more caffeine than in most regular instant coffees. And um, that helped me explain a real problem that I had with these coffee houses, which was why would someone wait in line and pay $5 for a cup of coffee if there wasn't a drug in it? Because we have, you know, when you talk to drug addicts, they have a hard time, like, waiting in line for crack. Um, they all like the quick, get you know, they're not going to... Waiting in line is... It involves some delay that drug addicts have a problem with. But waiting in line, um, I think, works for caffeine. So so I think when it's included in, in foods that otherwise might not be highly reinforcing, um, you can stimulate liking and taking. So given what you've
1: just said, Mark, it, it makes sense that companies would put caffeine in products. And most people don't realize that the soft drink companies, for example, put caffeine in those cola drinks. Most of them don't have much to begin with, and the companies add it under the guise of being a flavor enhancer. But, of course, if it's addictive, even mildly addictive, it keeps people coming back for more and wanting more of that substance. And I know a lot of people are concerned about caffeine in its own right, especially in the context of the energy drinks you mentioned. They seem to be ever-increasing levels of caffeine to the point that some of them have startling amounts of it. Um, Our interest in this is the fact that caffeine, as you mentioned, almost always comes coupled with calories. And therefore if people are driven to these calorie-laden foods and the caffeine is making them want to eat more of it over time, then there's a real problem.
0: Well, I I think, you know, uh, the early days, probably the turn of the century, and your historian here at Yale, David Musto, did some of that description. You know, he talked about uh, Vin Mariani, which was a, a drink of alcohol and cocaine, and when and Coca-Cola, the original formula Coca-Cola, which of course had cocaine in it. So um, when and I think Musto pointed out quite correctly that when um, uh, Coca-Cola. It took the ca- the cocaine out, it was replaced with caffeine. I mean, it's it very interesting, I think, the pediatric exposure to caffeine. There's so much exposure um, that uh, there's more and more use, and kids do know the difference between brands of, of soft drink related to how much caffeine they have. I mean, I had never had any idea. Whether Mountain Dew had this and the other one had that. I think that's true, so there's a tolerance. Also, there's some evidence in surgical studies that our society is so caffeine dependent that some surgery centers have suggested putting caffeine in IV fluids when you go in for surgery because so many people are having caffeine withdrawal uh, after surgery with irritability and anger and. And changes metabolic changes. Well, I hadn't heard that. That's an amazing, amazing observation.
1: So let's uh, wind up by talking about the implications of this whole issue of food and addiction. Um, one can only imagine how the landscape would change if the when the science, if the science gets to the point where we can absolutely say that certain things are addictive. Uh, first, there are legal implications, possible litigation possibilities that may kick in. Uh, about product liability things, um, one can imagine the legality or morality of selling foods in schools of marketing them to children that have, uh, have these um, have these sort of issues. so the implications I think are enormous and, and that makes me uh, appreciate even more the importance of your work and, and why we need to push on this in the field and you know who knows where it's going to go but it's so important to pin this down to find out whether food can dr- trigger an addictive process. And one, one thing I wanted to ask you, there seems to me to be an important distinction between uh, talking about food as a potentially addictive substance and talking about people as food addicts. And my, my sense, and I'd be curious to see what you think about this, that if you classify people as food addicts, it's going to be easy to marginalize the whole concept that, oh, that's just a silly rationalization people are using for why they're overweight and that there's something wrong with them because they're an addict. Whereas if you talk about food as a potentially addictive substance, then you seem to get away from that potentially. And you th- then you can think more about what it might be doing to hijack the brain and you get into that kind of domain. Does that distinction make sense to you?
0: It does. But, you know, for, for me, I mean, I have my career in neuroscience and the brain and behavior. So I would say the implications of the hypothesis and the implications of, of food as an addicting substance are the same as we would say for gambling. What are the opportunities for new treatment development? What are the opportunities for us understanding the brain? They're tremendous. The, the treatments that currently exist, short of surgery, are few and far between. And most of them are potential drugs of abuse. So uh, by, by ha- understanding the addiction neurobiology and, and the brain and how it relates to food, we'll be able to develop new treatments. I think that's, I would come in and say, the hope for the next 10 years for new treatment development will depend on what we find out about these messengers and how they're controlled. Um, uh, So I I focus a lot on that. I'd also like to understand how surgery works. And I didn't mention this, but we have a project now looking at brain changes after bariatric surgery. Even though they do a lot of these procedures, no one really knows how they work. So our idea was they work on the brain, changing the relationship that a person has to their food, and that would be important because if you could figure that out, you might be able to do the surgery without the surgery. Like I could figure out a mechanism and develop a new approach that wouldn't, uh, wouldn't you wouldn't have to do major. Have surgery. the same effect on the brain. Have the same effect
1: on the brain. Change people's relationship with food and right. not require the surgery. Right.
0: So now, the, just to get back to your you know, is it, you know, is it is, you know, what, and um, there, I think that the people wouldn't mind being called an alcoholic if there was Betty Ford. And I'll, I'll give you like a quick, I, I was very interested in, in helping with the stigma associated with depression and alcohol. And a lot of the, these um, problems, uh, they the, the stigma is tremendous and gets in the way of helping people. Um, and at one time, it was so uh, stigmatized to have depression that people would leave their state and to get to fill their antidepressant prescriptions. Now, when you when you hear that, uh, the younger people are going to that's ridiculous. We know all these people taking Prozac and taking this and depressions like this. So being called uh, depressed or depressed, having a DSM, quote, mental disorder, right. doesn't bother people now because there's hope and help and they've been destigmatized. I think the problem for people who are obese is that uh, no matter what you call them, it doesn't help them st- with their current struggle and either help them to... Uh, lose weight in a rational way, change their relationship to food, and ultimately lose weight. We can't even tell what will prevent obesity from developing in a person who has a propensity, genetic or otherwise, to be obese. So I I think it's um, right now, um, if you said that if you had a disease, obesity, but no treatment, you'd still be in the same place to me. So I think... We can change the whole vector and, and stigma by having a more clear understanding of genetics, neurobiology that relates to genetics, risk for obesity. I think most people don't even realize that identical twins reared apart. Even if one of them was in a family that was big time health and wellness, they end up having the same body mass index. Right. So, I mean, genes are, are important. Um, environments important, exercise important, diets important, and as you correctly point out, there are going to be critical periods of exposure that would change the brain in a direction that the genes might not have intended, and that our work hopes to elucidate. But uh, to me, as a as a career, l- lifelong um, inve- inventor and investigator hope is going to come in taking obesity and saying, well, there really are 40 syndromes in it, and I can treat this one, and then I'll treat this one, and then I'll treat, this, you know, so I can remember being, as here we are in Connecticut, a Yale resident at Connecticut Valley Hospital, and I think there were 10,000, 20,000 people living in the state mental hospital um, at that time. And maybe they're 900 today. I don't know. I mean, it's going to be substantially less as treatment has improved. It's not perfect. It's improving.
1: Good. Well, it's so interesting to hear your perspective on this. So thank you for joining us today. I really am am grateful for the pioneering work you've done on the field. You've inspired the work that we do in many ways. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thanks. Great to be here, New Haven.
1: Uh, So again, I I welcome you to visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org to uh, see a list of our podcasts and the other resources we have available. I'm happy that our guest today was Mark Gold, a distinguished professor at the University of Florida and pioneer in the area of addictions research. Um, Until the next time, we look forward to joining you.